Hello and thank you for listening. This is Rich Goodman, Head of Capital Development for Toronto Stock Exchange and TSX Venture Exchange. Welcome to TMX Presents, the podcast. This is where we have conversations with capital markets leaders from around the world. We look to gain insights from the influential decision makers and visionary entrepreneurs helping to shape the future business landscape. As head of capital development for Canada's largest equity exchanges, my role is to unlock global pools of capital for our listed issuers on the TSX and TSX Venture Exchange. In today's episode, we are going to talk about disruptive innovation trends, private venture versus public venture investing, the direction of Canadian pension funds investments in Canada, and the professional and personal grit and tenacity of our guest today, Mr. John Ruffalo. For the few of you out there who may not be aware, John Ruffalo is one of the global leaders in venture investing, resulting in massive contributions to the growth of Canada's technology sector. He founded Omer's Ventures 11 years ago and left to found Maverick's Private Equity, which he is also managing partner. He is the co-founder and vice chair of the Council of Canadian Innovators and the co-founder and chair of the board of AI Partnerships. John sits on the board of a number of leading innovation-based organizations, including Engineering.com, 111, and Ether Capital. Welcome, John, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Richard. John, you're famously known for venture investing. At Omer's, you invested over 500 million US in over 40 innovation companies. Now you started your own $500 million fund, Mavericks Private Equity. Tell us about Mavericks and what it makes it unique in the Canadian PE landscape. Great. Well, thank you, Richard. I am always a venture investor in my heart. And it's really looking at the macroeconomic picture. Back in 2011, it was very clear to me that there was a huge opportunity to invest at the early stage of technology companies, largely by virtue of the massive transformations and collisions of technology starting around 2008. And I felt that with about a three-year lag, 2011 was going to be the rise of venture investing for approximately the next decade. I actually thought it was going to end or slow down substantively by 2020, but so it was off for about 18 months. But about halfway through that cycle, started realizing that a different cycle was at the front end of emerging. And that was really traditional companies that were taking those technologies that venture investors were investing in, but applying those technologies to their own businesses to make their businesses bigger, faster, cheaper, better. And those other traditional businesses represented, say, 90% of Canada's GDP, as opposed to the 10% of technology businesses that I was chasing. So I saw a much, much larger market available, number one, and number two, a very big mismatch on the supply and demand for capital. So in the venture sector, as it started heating up, we started to see massive amounts of capital coming in. And I started to see that there was too much capital chasing too few deals. 
but yet in this growth private equity asset class, which is far more familiar in the United States, there was not a single player in Canada that focused in on that space. So I thought it was a huge opportunity to once again really be the first and primary player in an emerging asset class. Yeah, in a way, you're disrupting the Canadian private equity industry by investing in these later stage technology-driven growth companies. Yeah, when people asked me, when I built Omer's Ventures, did I create something new? And the answer was no. I just imported the best of the firms in the United States, frankly, and felt that I wanted to disrupt the Canadian venture model. So just what you've said, I'm not inventing anything new. I'm actually borrowing again from the best of the U.S. model and importing into Canada. And I think by virtue of that disrupting what's currently largely the Canadian private equity model, which is virtually all of a buyout asset class and very little, if any, growth private equity asset class. Continuing on this disruptive theme, what areas of the economy do you feel right now are ripe for disruption? All of them. (laughs) And part of the thing that I find rather amusing, and I started to find it amusing back in 2015, 2016, when I started to see the application of technology cross the chasm. And it started first with the financial services, in particular, the Canadian banks. But I found it amusing when the market didn't know what to call these companies that weren't really technology companies, but they kind of felt like it. So they made these cute names, fintech, prop tech, health tech, everything tech. Well, for God's sakes, every business will have to be supported by technology. And if you don't, there's another name. They're called bankrupt businesses. And that's what will happen to them because it just makes your business cheaper, faster, better, and you have greater customer insights. So all of the economy and areas like one of the areas that I'm looking at right now that I never, ever thought I would, but mining technologies that I don't really know a whole lot about, but the whole mining industry is going to be technology-based. I mean, oil and gas already, that's happened. So if you think that technology will not apply to your particular industry, I will tell you, you will be wrong. And that includes, you know, the old joke was, well, at least sweeping the streets. Well, no, there's robots for that now, and there's robots for doing that inside. So Everything will happen, and so you can try to fight it or accept it and realize, okay, what can be done to take our economy to the next level and ensuring that we're just not shutting out people as we make this massive transformation. Is it fair to say that in your former life at Omer's Ventures, you were looking at the technology companies to invest in? while today you're looking at the companies that are employing that technology. Yes, that is for the most part correct. And it didn't really mean to exclude 
the technology companies themselves is not an, an opportunity to invest from a growth perspective. However, the capital dynamics are such that let's use a SaaS software business for the moment. There is so much capital chasing SaaS software companies that the valuations had gone to stratospheric levels and it was difficult to make a return or an appropriate level return, you know, when the businesses are, are great, solid businesses. However, the customers to those SaaS businesses started seeing the entry points for the most part, you know, not cheap uh, because nothing is cheap today, really, but far more reasonable. And our ability to make a, a requisite level of return was far more attractive. For those companies that may be listening to this right now, uh, what criteria would you suggest to see if they qualify for an investment from Mavericks? Well, one of the fundamental things, and this is, you know, and again, I couldn't believe that the markets would get more frothier than they became, but it started around 2016, 2017, but by 2019, it got to just ridiculous levels. But the mantra of growth at all costs, ignoring economic margin, ignoring unit economics, ignoring that once you have scalability that you'll be able to enjoy profits, those traditional mantras went down the toilet. And it was fueled by basically cheap capital by largely venture capitalists created an environment that put pressure on entrepreneurs to grow no matter what, knowing full well that the businesses could not sustain those levels of growth and the, the economics were terrible. I think now that the markets have had their reckoning and have dropped so precipitously, we're just reverting back to what Mavericks' mantra really is. We're big believers at growth, but profitable growth. And what does that really mean? We're not funding product market fit. We're funding specifically scalability. And what that really means is that, you know, you have an economic margin when you're selling your goods. It might be that you have no discernible EBITDA because you're reinvesting all of your EBITDA profits back into that growth. And that's absolutely fine. But what we're not doing is funding the, the, you know, the risk of whether the product even works or in the technology lingo, we're not funding the technology risk we are funding execution risk and whether a business that has a hundred million in revenue can grow to 500 million very, very profitably. That's what we're really good at. And we could help the entrepreneurs on that journey. And that's what Mavericks is really doing. And we're looking at companies generally in the 10 million to hundred million revenue range, although not to be overly prescriptive, but that's really where those companies start to really think about global scalability. 
And we're looking for companies that, again, are EBITDA probably flattish, or we could at least see turning positive within the next 12 months. And at a minimum, we're looking for a material minority stake. On average, it's sort of in the 20-ish percent range. It could be as much as 40. But we believe in the entrepreneur or the founding team. We're betting on them. And we're just partnering with them on the same economics that they are. I don't believe in trying to create different economic incentives. And the one core element is... You need to be growing, you know, ideally greater than your competition. And typically we're seeing 20 to 50% growth rates. But the reason for the disproportionate growth is their disruptive thesis. They need to be doing something disruptive. Whether it's disruptive by virtue of the adoption of the technologies that they're using, it could be disruptive from their business model perspective, but we spend a lot of time on that disruptive thesis. And so if it's something that might be a roll-up of a number of businesses, you know, and they're just trying to get scalability based on size. That's that's not for us. But if somebody's using some really cool technological platform that's making it very easy for their customers to to leverage, that's something that we would be interested in. So what I'm hearing is that you need to see the growth potential. You need to see that there's a viable disruptive thesis that you buy into. And most importantly, that you believe management is right to execute that vision. Yes. Good summary. So John, just switching gears here for a moment, your investments are primarily, if not exclusively with private companies, some of which may ultimately go public. How do you describe your relationship with the public market ecosystem? Well, in our case, when we're looking to towards ultimately realizing our exit, it could be through recapitalizing the company by just enjoying the dividends. It could be through an acquisition. It could be through a buyout, private equity financing. And lastly, it could be from an IPO. Personally, and as an investor, we need to just look at what's best for our investors largely. But personally, I prefer the IPO route only because it really makes a statement that the company is here to stay and wants to build for the long haul. So say one of the companies that I backed, Shopify, they could have easily have been acquired many, many times. But the founder, Toby Lutke, his objective was to build the biggest possible Canadian company here for the longest time. And it really meant going public was the right route for that. So for the best of companies, in my view, the going public route is the right answer largely for the employees, for the economy, and ultimately for our investors. So I am biased to that, but it has to be for the right company. And sometimes 
companies make the decision to go public when perhaps they're not really ready for it. Yeah, I'll, I have a question on Shopify, but I'll get to that a little later. Just sticking on the public investing theme for a moment, our venture exchange is seen by many as an invaluable public venture avenue to access capital and achieve growth. Uh, hundreds of these companies have graduated to the TSX and other global senior exchanges. Many private and institutional investors look to the TSX Venture Exchange as an effective means to invest in early stage venture companies. What's your view of our venture exchange? Well, my view always is the more access and avenues to capital, the better, number one. So I encourage more and more different avenues. Now, there are a number of sectors for a variety of different reasons that don't exactly get the right level of attention or appetite from institutional investors. Let me give you one obvious example, the cannabis sector. Canada has been viewed as a global leader in driving that sector, but for a lot of investors, including when I was at Omer's, it was a prohibited investment. And for many, it still is by virtue of the U.S. legal situation around cannabis. So if you really wanted to scale a cannabis business, you really don't have a whole lot of choices. And what was interesting that a lot of retail investors were big believers in cannabis. And so having the venture exchange available to a lot of the cannabis businesses was not only the right avenue, it was kind of one of the only avenues for a lot of these folks. So when you look at cannabis, when you look at life sciences, particularly pharmaceuticals and medical devices, where there's a long investment horizon, when you look at some of the clean tech, there's a lot of themes where they're not right in the main part of investing. The venture exchange has become a valuable source of capital for those businesses that now seem to be a lot more available or there's a greater appetite now from the institutions. But for the last 10 years, there was almost no bites from them whatsoever. For the typical investor at home that may not be able to invest directly in Mavericks or, or other similar funds, what advice would you have for them to get their exposure to this sector that you're investing in? Yeah, it's a bit of an issue in that there's no simple answer here. So from a opportune time over the last 10 years, the average investor who's not an accredited investor kind of lost out on a lot of the massive returns that were generated by the private investing sector, particularly in technology. Whereas if you were wealthier, you could always have been an investor in these funds or you could have been an angel investor. And so in the last 25 years or 
maybe 30 years, the only product that was really available in Canada was the Canadian Developed Labor Sponsored Venture Fund product, which ended up being an absolute disaster. And part of the challenge that regulators have is they do want to have the average person being able to participate in the wealth that's being generated by these technology companies. But when the cycle turns, as it's turning right now, who's getting hit? It's a lot of those same investors. So we've seen in the last six months, the average tech company on public exchanges, you know, in North America lose 50% of their value. And a lot of those are those same retail investors who would have loved to have participated earlier, but couldn't. Now they do, but it's just because the timing just so happened to turn against them. So the real question is, what is the best decision for all? And certainly investors could invest in mutual funds for public companies, and there's no issue there. And some folks are participating through pension funds, and getting their return that way. And I just saw it, was it a week or so ago, Wealthsimple had introduced their product that they're able to not have the accredited investor rule apply. So there is a little bit that's going on, but certainly I think we're still in a what do you do scenario? And I think the best time to decide these sort of things is in a down market environment so that people could really understand whether they're really missing out on something after all. Yeah, we definitely see retail investors, many come in a little late and leave a little too late. And I know that a lot of the regulation is there to protect these investors But in many situations, these regulations limit their investment opportunities. So it's good to see more opportunities becoming available to them. John, a few years ago, I asked you to participate in a new TSX committee looking at increasing pension fund investments in innovation companies. Your insights were invaluable, so thank you. As part of your work, We observed that Canadian pension funds were systematically reducing their exposure to Canadian public equities. Is this trend reversible? That's a uh, tough question, but I could say to you, and I don't know if it's a bit of a Canadian thing, but I always found it bizarre. It It wasn't only the Canadian public companies that were being shunned, but so were the Canadian private ones. And they were being shunned mostly by Canadians. And I don't know if it's an inferiority complex or always thinking that there are better companies elsewhere in the world. But when I started Omer's Ventures, it was back in 2011, the target market was solely Canada. And the original allocation of capital from Omer's to me was $180 million Canadian. And the time that was a big pot of money but i remember what the reaction was i gotta tell you it scared the bejesus out of me very smart individuals said 180 million how the hell are you going to deploy that into canada 
And I already started developing my U.S. strategy to figure out that maybe I put in 90 in Canada and 90 in the United States, something like that. And billions of dollars later, it's still going on. And it was overlooked. And even now that I started Mavericks, it is Canada and the United States, but a Canada first strategy. I believe in this country, and but also part of the investment thesis, and you said it early on, it's the belief in the management team. So you really know that management team that's 12 hours away. Huh, interesting. And how well do you really know them? As opposed to there is no management team in this country that we don't know or have one degree of separation that knowing very, very well. That's very, very important. And it's your ability to really see that. In private investing, the earlier you go, the more localized it is. And there has been some large firms that have been trying to use a hedge fund approach. And they looked like they were very, very smart for about two years. And it's been blown out of the water. I'm not going to mention the names. And there was a few that were trolling in Canada. And they just thought that using data without any human element was the right way to go. And it's now looking like there were some pretty foolish bets. And the one that's been most publicized globally has been SoftBank. Well, they're basically, they didn't know the management teams. They did very, very limited due diligence. They don't get actively involved. And yeah, they've had a few good investments, but a disproportionate number of absolute dogs. Well, it's no secret why that happened. And anyone who's in the investment community was watching by and all and everyone was still saying, how are they doing this? And getting away with it, wait till that first dog shows up and it turned out to be a number of them. And I'm not picking on SoftBank, but there's a lot of smart private investors out there that have been doing things for a long time. And it's not because that they're dumb or they don't like to move. It is one that works. And, and again, when I make an investment, when it's a venture investment, 70%, of the answer lies into the team. When it's growth private equity, it's more like 50%. So it's a little bit less, but still significant. And the team drives results. It's as simple as that. A couple things you said stand out. The Canadian inferiority complex that seems to be present with certain institutional investors and also the faith in foreign companies being able to bring their strategy globally, but less faith in Canadian entrepreneurs to crack foreign markets. I'm not sure there's a question there, but maybe you can <laughs> expand on that. Well, I just think you're absolutely right. It's funny in a way that a lot of the Canadian real estate companies, most of them are now owned by pension funds, have done exceptionally well holding Canadian real estate, but they were way over allocated in Canada and needed some geographic diversification. But they are still very largely 
focused in on Canada because they know the geography so well. But yet when you go into public equities, because Canada possesses, you know, something between two and three percent of global GDP automatically correlates to, well, then that means that your public equity allocation should not be more than two to three percent in many cases. When I scroll through and look at the holdings by pension funds on their public holdings, with the exception of perhaps some of the banks, there's virtually no holdings. And I just do find that rather odd. The other thing that I would say is one of the challenges with the Canadian public capital markets is if a particular company is trading only on the Canadian exchange, the criticism is that it doesn't get enough liquidity and it's not reflective of its fair market value price. Well, we have pension funds that have combined a few trillion dollars of capital. And if they only looked in their own backyard, maybe we wouldn't exactly have that problem of lack of liquidity. And again, I'm not an expert of other pension funds around the world, but when I do speak to them, they are far more cognizant of the impact of their supporting local companies and not just for the sake of it, of course. But if you have two equal opportunities, one is Canadian and one is non-Canadian, for God's sakes, pick the Canadian one, if all else being equal. And it's funny, it's as simple as that. And, and in many cases, we still don't do that. And it just baffles me why we don't do it. Very well said. You mentioned earlier Shopify, one of your more famous investments. At one point, Omer's Ventures owned about 6% stake in Shopify. They went public at about a $1.3 billion valuation, ultimately getting valued over $130 billion. Not a bad return, <laughs> but because of the pensions rules, Omer's had to divest not that long after Shopify went public, they started selling off systematically. Is that a lost opportunity in the pension funds? Well, just a correction, they didn't have to divest. They chose to divest. Yeah, I'd say it was a lost opportunity. And the decision wasn't made on the quality of the company. It was made on an arbitrary view by many pension funds that they wouldn't hold equities of companies below certain market capitalizations. So it would be viewed as at the time, a billion dollar valuation would have been viewed, I guess, as a mid cap. I guess now it's almost a small cap now, but the view of our team was, yeah, it's a mid cap today give it a few years. But again, what are you really doing? Are you, are you looking for a return or you're just managing your downside risk? And whenever you just focus in on the downside risk only, you do give up a lot of the upside. Now, the only good fortune that actually did happen, and 
I think, Richard, you saw it because we had to sell it off of the TSX. That was done in 35 trades over a very extended period of time because the position was so large that if we sold too much at any given time, it would actually depress the stock. But something bizarre happened after every trade. So 35 consecutive times the price went up. Richard, you're the expert on this. I'm not sure how many times you've seen that happen on a uh, mid-cap stock. Exactly zero. Right. I've never seen it. haven't seen it since. Yeah, amazing. It, it really speaks to Shopify's success and their ability to continuously attract investors and execute. Yes, and it ended up being, so who was on the other side of the trade? Largely American investors, not Canadian. There you go. Right. Three years ago, you looked to be set to raise your initial target of $500 million for Mavericks. You were going to do that in record time. Then you had a significant professional setback when one of your major investors pulled out. And 18 months ago, you had a major personal setback involving a horrific life-threatening cycling accident. You were told that you might not survive the first 48 hours, and then you were told you would never walk again. Fast forward to today, you raised the 500 million, you're walking with the native of a walker, and you're cycling again. Tell me about this man that refuses to give up. Yeah, it might be a glutton for punishment because you can throw in COVID uh, in there as well too. Yeah, it was it certainly has not been an easy ride and the cycling accident certainly was one that really I was able to deal with the the loss of the original investor. It took me about I think it took me about 42 minutes to get over that one. COVID came and hit and I had to hold off for about 2 months or so, but you kind of knew that things would get better and the world would open up. You know, didn't realize it was going to take as long as it did, but but you knew that. But it was the third thing, being run over by a transport truck, was certainly one that was very difficult to overcome and certainly made me rethink whether, you know, I'd just be able to physically recover from it. And it took about, uh, let's see here, about six or seven weeks when I'm still in a rehab hospital, almost immovable. So for folks who didn't know, when I was hit, I had two huge traumas. One was to my back. So I was hit in the back, which obliterated my T12 vertebrae and damaged my spinal cord and paralyzed me from the waist down. And the other injury really was caused by being flung in the air about 30 feet and landing violently on the ground, splitting my pelvis into six pieces, shattering all my ribs, damaging all of my organs losing half of my blood and the list went on and on and on and I didn't realize until I was told later that I was in the middle of dying on the ground and bizarrely woke up while I was dying 
And I was expected to die within the first 48 hours, although the doctors didn't understand why I didn't die immediately on impact because the trauma was so severe. But to get through all of that on the other side, then to be told that you'll never walk again, like I don't know how many punches in the face I can uh, take on that, but it took me about six weeks from that moment lying on my hospital bed and really making a decision, do I feel sorry for myself or do I just keep on going? And I made the decision to keep on going and started fundraising on my back and calling up all the investors. And the thing about Canada and why I love Canada, every investor who had indicated that they were going to come in, all of them waited for me, which I, I still can't believe that. And they waited for me about another two-ish months or two and a half months, I guess, to get out of hospital. So I had a total stay of four months. And three months later, we were closed. And today, just as you had indicated, I do have two full-time jobs, running a fund and getting physio. And I do physio five or six days a week, somewhere between 20 to 30 hours a week. It's grueling. I hate it. I hate every minute of it, but you have to do it. And bizarrely, my cycling legs did turn back on, even though I'm paralyzed below the knees. My quads, hamstrings, and glutes have turned on to various degrees. And I'm back on my Peloton and I have a a special recumbent bike outside and I'm pedaling with my feet and yet I can't walk, but I do have the aid of a walker and I can't walk very long distances, but I could certainly walk and I hope one day I'll be able to walk much longer distances with walking poles and I may never walk again unaided, but that's not what I was told. So All I can just say is it is tough and grueling, but but it does take real effort. And every day is a struggle, but every day I get stronger. So I just got to keep my mind and my focus in on the ultimate prize. And hopefully I'll exceed my own objectives that I have set uh, early on. I think you're being remarkably humble when you attribute the Canadian investors staying with you as a Canadian thing. I think it's a John Ruffalo thing. They know you best. They clearly have faith that this kind of setback, as terrible as it was, as serious as it was, wasn't going to stop you. Thank you. Are there any lessons that you can offer the listeners about how you achieve these both personal and professional challenges? What can we learn from this? Well, you know, it's funny because for years people would ask me, what do I look for? If I, if you had to give one or two characteristics that is a string that runs through all of the entrepreneurs that I believe that I successfully invested in, it's perseverance and adaptability. And I've said that for many years and little did I know that I had to really 
do that test myself. And so on the perseverance side, you know, life does go on as long as you have life. And I've learned that. And again, you have your good days, you have your bad days, but life keeps on going on and really focusing in on what's important. And the second thing is adaptability in that as I can't do all the things that I would usually like to do, I've very quickly adapted to my new situation and figured out how to focus in on the things that I can still do very, very well. And the things that are more difficult for me to do, you know, you surround yourself with the folks that might be able to do that better than you. So having the adaptability to to do that, I've learned how critical that is. So what I've really learned is I was under no choice of my own forced to adopt the two very criteria that I have said for over the last 10 years on what I look for. And now, you know, I've had to uh, drink my own Kool-Aid. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for taking the time with me today for your candid and insightful remarks. Uh, Your personal and professional perseverance and adaptability are inspiring to say the least. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Well, thank you so much, Richard. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to TMX Presents, the podcast. And thank you to John Ruffalo for joining us. For more information on TSX and TSX Venture Exchange investing information, please subscribe to our monthly Investor Insights Report and our Market Intelligence Report by visiting tsx.com slash MIG. That's tsx.com slash MIG. And for more insights from Capital Markets leaders and my TMX colleagues, please visit tmx.com slash POV.